Hey, listeners, it's Tori here. I just wanted to jump in before our episode starts and let you all know that this is going to be a special two-part episode. Our first segment is going to be uh, just an interview with Eric Strong, our special guest for today. And we're just going to talk to him about his perspectives as a black male in law enforcement. And uh, then we'll be hitting you up on Sunday with the second part of that episode where Eric sticks around and talks to us um, about some of the stories that we have uh, here at What Are You Bringing to the Table. Uh, so we're excited for this episode. We're excited for you to listen to it. It is a little bit longer than normal, but I think that you're going to find that some great content and we'll, we'll all learn a lot during this process and we'll all keep learning. So enjoy the episode and until next time, nos vemos. Welcome to What Are You Bringing to the Table? This is your girl Sylvia, she, her, and hers. And hello, this is Tori, she, her, and hers. And we are here today for another episode. Um, our episodes have been a little bit different over the last few weeks, and that's okay because there's a lot happening in the world. Uh, today, we have another uh, special guest uh, with us today. We have a gentleman by the name of Eric Strong. He is in law enforcement, and so he is here at the table, virtually speaking, um, <laughs> to talk a little bit about kind of his perspective and perspective of him uh, being in law enforcement and a little bit of him himself. So without further ado, I'll let Eric talk a little bit more about himself, and we'll just get into our discussion as we always do here at What Are You Bringing to the Table? Bring? All right, go ahead, Eric. All right. Hi, Tori. Hi, Sylvia. Um, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, as you said, my name is Eric, and I'm here today to to help uh, shed some light on maybe a law enforcement's perspective, um, being a black man in law enforcement. Well, before we move forward, Eric, what are your pronouns? How he, do you he, him, and his. Yeah, Good. Yeah, thank you. Did I say that right? <laughs> yes. Well, perfect. Yes, you, well, I don't know. It's up to you. Yes. He, him, you know, him. Did you identify correctly? Yes. That's, okay. Is him and he. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've been in law enforcement a little over 27 years. Um, I started off in a little small town in Southern California that you may have never heard of. It was called Compton. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, Compton Police Department uh, back no in the early No big rappers 90s. coming out of there. Hmm? I said no big rappers coming out of there. No, no. Probably never heard of it anywhere. No movies or anything made no. about it. No. But, uh, uh, yeah, I worked for Compton Police Department um, in the early 90s up until 2000. I had a brief stint at Pasadena Police Department, which is another municipality here in Southern California. And then for about the last 20 years, I've been with the Sheriff's Department. Um I've had the absolute privilege to work with some great, wonderful people. Um, I've worked gangs, 
I've been on a SWAT team. I've worked a task force. I've worked internal affairs. I did a lot of work uh, several years with um, kids at a youth center, uh, working with the community. Uh, I even worked our advocacy uh, unit, which is uh, deals with our employment law, which kind of evaluates cases, uh, the disciplinary cases that come through. Uh, I've been a unit commander, and I've worked in oversight uh, at our Audit and Accountability Bureau, and I'm now working in the uh, courts, court services. So I, I think I've pretty much touched just about all you can touch in, in this career, short of, uh, and, and I, I was going to say short of flying a helicopter, but I've even done that actually. Um, not as a pilot, I was just an observer and they let me fly a couple of times. <laughs> Uh, so that's it. I, I got a pretty good amount of experience and um, worked in a lot of the uh, uh, inner city. Most of my career in the patrol stations has been in either Compton or South L.A. or the Watts Willowbrook area, areas like that. Um, and in what years, like, were you working, say, in those in Compton? Because and... Pasadena is known for their, you know, the big rose parade, you know, uh, um but, I, you know, in Pasadena, I mean, when I was growing up, Pasadena was a pretty nicer neighborhood. Um, I don't know what it, the makeup is now. Uh, but, yeah, so how long uh, work or when were you working in uh, the Compton area? So I, I started in Compton in 1993. Um, I was there. I left Compton for a brief period, went to Pasadena. It's still a very nice affluent area, but they also have what they call North Pasadena, which some people would say is not the nice area of Pasadena, but to me, it's just, it's another area. Um, and then I left Pasadena. I wasn't there quite a year and I left and went back to Compton police department. Um, so I was there all through the nineties from 93 on to 2000. Yeah. So, and I guess this is the thing, because I, I, I ran into something like this the other day, um, was when we talk about, you know, the bad areas, quote unquote, I, I ended up making my own little ism where um, somebody had made a comment about uh, a certain area, we shouldn't go to the certain park because it's kind of sketchy. And, and I fell into that, like, okay, well, let's go somewhere else. And to, to realize what I'm doing now is um okaying that person's unwarranted fear about you know that area or that park or whatever so when you know when you were talking about uh people saying oh that's kind of is this you know because when the the code words are ooh north pasadena mostly people of color you know right so I, am i as to assume that that's what north uh pasadena is uh predominantly with people of color or is it like just you know, I, I haven't worked there since I want to say I was there in 98, 99, somewhere yeah. around there. I would say that the North Pasadena area had a higher population mm-hmm. of uh, minorities at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I have to say that I can tell you that there are some of the most beautiful homes and beautiful people in yeah. Compton, in Watts, wherever you go. Yeah. So, yeah, the demographic in at that time, there was a higher population of uh African-Americans and uh, Hispanics at the time. And that's what I want our listeners to know is to be, you know, because again, I fell into that. I, I, without even thinking about it. So I want our listeners to understand that language does matter, that when, you know, 
if, if I myself fall into that unwarranted fear of, oh, I can't go to that park because it's sketchy. And I grew up, and I would say in the sketchy part of, you know, San Diego, uh, to me, it was just my neighborhood. It, I didn't know any different. It was what it was. And, you know, I felt comfortable. I didn't feel nervous walking down to the store or any of that kind of stuff. But, you know, you try to. I try to bring one of my white friends, and it's all of a sudden parents are like, "Oh, yeah, uh, yeah maybe you can come over to our house." Right. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So had, had those experiences. <laughs> right. So go ahead and continue with your experiences. Um, you know that that's a that's about it. Again, I mean, I I, I feel like I'm pretty well rounded in law enforcement. You know, uh, like I said, I've been doing it about 27 years. So uh, I made it a point within my career to always try to do something different, you know, and not stay focused in one particular assignment or one particular area of assignments. You know, you have some people that get into investigations and that's what they want to do their, for their whole career. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's their, if that's their passion, that's their passion. I always enjoyed trying something new, trying something new so that I could learn as much as I could about the profession. Um, all the way around. Um, and like I said, I've worked in, in a variety of areas with a variety of dim different demographics. And, um, you know, what I found is that you, we should be basically policing them all the same, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty much uh, the gamut of my experience um, in terms of, like I said, in a nutshell, uh, um, yeah, it, you know, especially working in Compton in the early 90s, it was a very busy, busy time for, for us as police officers. So there's probably not a lot that I haven't seen. And when I tell you uh, I've seen a lot, it, it, you know, that's not tooting my own horn. It's not, you know, saying, hey, rah, rah, look for Eric. I'm just saying, you know, I've had an opportunity to really, really uh, get to see some things that a lot of law enforcement officers within certain careers never get to see, you know, but then there's obviously thousands and thousands of, of them out there that have just as much, if not more experience than I do. Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, when we were talking to um, uh, our other guest, Stefan, he was talking about, um, he obviously he wasn't in law enforcement, um, but he was just talking about what it's, you know, what this whole George Floyd, um, how it's affected him. Um, and, you know, I guess I would like to ask you the same thing, you know, being a man of color, um, like how has it affected you? Um, to, I don't know. Did you watch the video? I don't. Yes. So, yeah. You know, I will, I will say that it probably has a different effect on me than the average person. I, I can imagine the average person being uh, absolutely outraged, as, as we've seen nationally, uh, yeah. even internationally. You know, um, being in law enforcement, I can also put myself in that very situation, uh, being in a struggle, being in a fight, trying to take a suspect into custody. And I can tell you, and when I speak throughout this podcast, this is Eric Strong's opinion. This does not represent any other agency or anything. I can tell you that there was absolutely no justification 
infer what happened in that incident. And let me add one thing to this in that one of the things that I've also been is a force instructor. So um, I am post certified to teach force techniques and, and have been for over 10 or 12 years. And I taught force. I mean, I mean, I, I've been involved in these incidents. And so for the life of me, I can't see why that happened. You know, I, I truly cannot. And when I tell you that I have been in a lot of uses of force, I mean, it just, it comes with the territory, you know, and I say fights, whatever you want to call it, you know, it, you know, and you work in a certain area, you work in a certain uh, uh, profession, you know, there's certain things that come along with it. You know, um, ambulance drivers and paramedics are going to see a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. You know, um, police officers are too. You know, police officers are going to have to get into uh, situations where, quite honestly, the bad guy or bad girl just doesn't want to go to jail. Mm-hmm. And it's our job to somehow get them there. Uh, but in this instance, I don't see anything that justified um, that particular action right there. You know, I. I I do want to add this, though. So, you know, there's been a major outcry, obviously. But I can tell you this. We've seen many, many instances over the years of questionable shootings, uses of force, deaths, whatever you want to call it. I can honestly say that I have never seen the law enforcement community speak out against an incident like this. And I mean, as a whole, I have never seen so many races come together and protest as they did in this particular incident. So, you know, if anything is coming out good from this and there's nothing good coming out from Mr. Floyd's death, I mean, absolutely. There's, there's, you know, and I, and I have the greatest amount of sympathy for the family. Um, this should have never happened. But what I can tell you is that if anything, if there is any positive that we can find in this is I think that you have law enforcement people that are finally standing up and saying, hey, that there's nothing good about that. You know, um, for so many years, uh, I'll be honest, you see law enforcement protect law enforcement because they're law enforcement and for no other reason. I've had debates with many, many of my peers, many, many of my colleagues about why something could have been justified versus why it's not. And, and I will be the first to tell you that, you know, cops will typically find a way to justify or support what cops did, you know, and um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's justified or not. It just means that, you know, law enforcement, the culture is to support each other. Right. Um, You know, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that in because one of the questions that I'm, I often have and and when all of these kind of type things happen is it's it's not uncommon after after the fact we hear about the extensive discipline record of that officer right had so many uh, complaints of use of force some justified some not and the frustrating for me as a citizen as a licensed clinical social worker who understands mental health as a woman who's married to a black man with a hearing impairment who thinks every day that could be my husband, right? Like I see his face when these kind of things happen is 
and because you said you worked internal affairs, like, uh, yes. yeah. So I guess, you know, for me, could you shed some light for us to help us understand? And I know unions is a, is a, is a big thing in it, right? Just like, you know, I've worked union jobs my whole life and there's a process that has to happen and, and I respect unions and I think unions are a great thing. And there just seems to be this, like, it's it's when is enough to finally say to an officer like okay yeah you're you're no longer fit to have a gun and serve as an officer because of all of these complaints and all of these things things have happened so um just kind of wondering if you could give a perspective around that of you know how yeah like how, how egregious is agree like when is too much too much before they're let go you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble with this question. <laughs> you know, um, and when I say in hey, trouble, I mean... It's your opinion. It's you know, your so, opinion. So let me say this. First of all, every agency, people, I think people put a blanket on, on all of law enforcement and all agencies, and they think we do everything the same. They mm -hmm. think we have the same policies. They think we use the same terminology. We do not. You know... The force policy at, you know, um, LAPD will be the, the different force policy than maybe Culver City PD. The, you know, the, the force, use of force standards in Philadelphia will be different than they are in necessarily in Chicago. Now, they'll have a lot of similarities, a lot of them, but terminology may different, uh, may be different, and standards may be different. You know, you may see one law enforcement agency that uses the taser a lot. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other one says, before you use the taser, use the pepper spray first. You know, so I just want to be clear that when we're evaluating this stuff, we cannot evaluate it from one single standard. Mm -hmm. So I think it was Tori or maybe several, one of you mentioned use of force complaints. So there's a difference between a use of force complaint, and use of force investigation. So typically most agencies, when there is a use of force, there's some type of review. There's some type of review that goes on that says, Hey, we evaluated this. We had a supervisor look at it, or maybe multiple levels look at it. And we determined that it was good or bad. Now those are not necessarily complaints. They are just reviews that are internally generated. And then you have people that may come in and file a complaint and say, hey, you know, excessive force was used against me. So now that generates another review or another investigation. So those investigations are not necessarily the type of things that you would get disciplined of unless there's something pretty egregious, you know, that does it. So for example, I think LAPD, and I'm not, I don't know for sure, I'm not, you know, quoting, but I think their internal affairs is huge. They handle, um, all complaints, you know, that come in or the majority of them. Another agency may not ship them to internal affairs. They may have a supervisor review the complaint. So it's not necessarily an internal affairs docket number, file number or something like that. Mm -hmm. So now to get to the question of when is enough is enough. Um, that's up to the individual agency. You know, let's say, for example, that you do have a person that has a trend, a pattern that shows a lot of uh, uses of force or a lot of complaints about force. I mean, that's up to that agency's leadership. It's up to them to say, hey, enough is enough. You need to go sit down for a while or we need to send you to some more training. However, when, like I said, the culture 
is to make it okay, then how many of those complaints are really founded, so to say? You know, and and I've been in a position for a lot of years where I reviewed complaints and I was sometimes the last, you know, uh, reviewer to sign off on it, you know, uh, being as an acting unit commander or or something like that. And, you know, and I'm just being honest, you'll have sergeants and lieutenants that will pass it up to me saying, hey, everything's good. Hmm. Now, they're the ones that are there. We're out at the scene, maybe did interviews you know, maybe got initial statements. And then here I am reading a package, listening to interviews, um, looking at pictures, and I could see that it's not good from the very first time I read it. Mm-hmm. But I've had people say to me, well, hey, Eric, it is, I mean, I thought my position, my job was to, you know, to support the deputies. I said, well, it is. Your job is to provide support. Give them the tools that they need give them the information, the training, correct them when they need correcting. Giving support is just not finding everything that they do to be okay. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to, I think your question, Tori, was about when is enough, you know, with these internal affairs complaints. So, you know, um, complaints run the gamut. They're not just use of force. You have complaints about being rude, you have complaints about, you know, stealing money. You have complaints about, you know, running a red light. You know, they, why they turn their lights on and run the red light? You know what I mean? They just wanted to hurry up and get through the light. Well, there's all kinds of reasons that we do that. And the public just looks at that and they're mad because we can do it and they can't. Right. You know, but the question is, if I'm trying to get to your mother's house because she's pushed her, you know, life alert and I'm trying to get there as a first responder, do you want me to waiting at the red light? Or do you want me to get there as fast as I can? So um, every agency is different. Um, to talk about unions, every state has different laws. California has what we call POBAR, Peace Officers Bill of Rights. Uh, it gives law enforcement a very strong protective you know, umbrella to protect us from you know, uh, illegal work actions, firing, hmm. um, to make sure that investigations are handled properly. Um, other agencies, other states may not have that. So I, I, well, I guess what I'm saying is if we want to talk about some particular specific incidents, um, that might be better than just kind of giving a broad explanation. For example, you know, uh, Chauvin, I, I can't tell you why he had 18 complaints. I think that's what the news reported. Yeah. Something like he had 18 yeah, complaints. Like yeah. yeah, I don't know if they were founded, if they were unfounded. And I also don't know what the complaints were. You know, again, people will look at that and they'll exploit it. And they'll say he had 18 complaints. Well, what were they for? Was it because he took too long to get to a call? Was it because he, like I said, he turned on his lights and sirens and he went through a red light? Was it because he was rude to somebody or they didn't like the way he handled the call? Or were those complaints specifically force related? And did they have a racial component to the complaint? Now that's something we need to look at. But just to blanket say he had 18 complaints without some context, you know, we can't hold that. And I don't know how long he had been on the job. Yeah, you know, no, that that totally makes sense in my head. Um, I think, though, what you're saying is I don't know if a lot of people know that, right, that there's not like a national standard, right? Like if you look, for example, my profession is a social worker, licensed clinical social worker. You have the mm-hmm. national 
Association of Social Workers, where everybody who wants to get licensed have to pass a specific exam that's governed okay. by this national agency. Although then the difference is each state has different different licensing requirements, right? So in one state, you need this many hours. In another state, you need that many hours. But there is a, right. a standard that you have to meet. Um, that is a minimum set by NASW, right? So, um, but I don't think, I, I, I do believe that there's probably a lot of people out there that don't know kind of what you just said is that depending on agency, depending on state, um, depending on what capacity they have to even investigate complaints, depending on the culture, like, like what you're saying, if the culture beneath the, you know, the process of complaints says, that's ah, good, you know, we don't need to kick it up, you know, we don't need to kick it over there. So there is a lot of autonomy, it sounds like from each agency to be like, this is how we're going to handle them. And don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. So I, I think that's important to know. And, you know, um, yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. You know, and when I say autonomy, they still have to, like you said, uh, abide by the state standards. Yeah. You know, look at um, the California bar. You know, there may be other states that recognize the California bar and you don't have to take another bar exam. Right. But if you go to Washington, D.C., will they rec recognize that? Who knows? If you go to New York, are the laws different or will they recognize that? So uh, real estate licensing, you know, um, it's state. So every state has a different um, standard, although, again, very similar. Um Let's just look in California, for example, California Highway Patrol. You know, they are primarily responsible for the freeways and they are primarily responsible for traffic law enforcement, you know, um, commercial enforcement of the big rigs, accident investigation. You know, they're not a law enforcement agency that's going to go to a domestic violence call. Right. They don't do it. So but they're law enforcement. Mm -hmm. They have a badge. They have a gun. And if CHP does something on the freeway, on the side of the road, you know, what are they looking at? They're looking at all of law enforcement in a blanket, in a blanket, uh, you know, all across the country. Yeah, th that, I mean, all of that definitely makes sense. Um, you know, I, um, I think that the, the difficulty in kind of what you're saying too is in the past, um, there has been kind of a silence around things, even if someone didn't, agree with it but what we're seeing now like kind of what you're saying too is that you're seeing more officers actually stand up and say yeah this wasn't right than than in past and um i guess i, I kind of was wondering could you speak to a little bit about that that actual culture of silence within law enforcement and like what has been your experience with that um whether it's, you know, you saw something and thought, well, if I say something, maybe this will happen to me. Or you've seen people not say something and think, well, part of it may be because they, they wouldn't have to watch their back. I don't know. You know, like, could you kind of speak to more of that culture? You know, I, I don't I don't know if I want to say that there is a, a culture. Um, I no, I take that back. I guess you can say it is a culture when it's something that is a, a social norm within a certain community. So I guess that becomes a, a culture. Um, and, yes. and, also, and also to be fair is that type of culture is not just within the police department, but it's in, you know, in, you know, law oh, enforcement, yeah. the DA's office. Well, not even that, that in other, other uh, institutions. Right. I mean, on all right. our major institutions, right. Right? right? Like in educational system and, and healthcare. I mean, there, I think there is yeah. a little bit of that in every institution. Yeah. So. 
Right. No, absolutely. I mean, we've seen it in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it in, like you said, the hospitals. Yeah. You know, and and this is something that I speak to um, quite often, and and I'm going to use the word snitch. Um, that is a bad word in our society. Why is that a bad word? Why is it that if you stand up and you speak to something, you're labeled a snitch? And here's here's my theory on that. Here's my theory. So snitch is really basically a jailhouse term. Mm-hmm. It is a jailhouse term that has, has edged its way um, in a big tidal wave into society. It, you know, kindergarten kids use it. You know, uh, elementary kids are saying, well, I don't want to be a snitch. I don't want to tattletale, you know. So and what this means to me is that some people have done a very good job of saying I can be a bad person. I can go hit a little old lady over the head, knock her down, steal her purse and step on her when I leave. But if you tell that I did it, you're worse than I am. Mm -hmm. That's what snitch is. We have, when I say we, the world, society has convinced us that if we say anything to bad actors or if we say anything against bad actors, we're worse than they are. Mm. And that is absolutely wrong. It should not be that way. You know, and, and again, and I, you know, I'll tell you a quick story and I, you know, um, very unfortunate set of circumstances. There was a, a lady that lived in Compton. She moved from Long Beach. She moved to Compton and she had three children, two boys and a girl. And she lived on a street called Johnson. Now, Johnson was a known gang hangout for one of the local gangs. They sold a lot of dope. They sold PCP and she lived next door to the apartment building. So things would happen there. Shootings, drive-bys, dope sales, all kind of stuff. And, you know, and what do you do? You try to find somebody that's going to help you out. Hey, just tell me where they're hiding the dope. You know what I mean? I, nobody will let you know. Tell me what color the car was. No, no, I got to live here. My kids got to live here, you know. So I'm going to I'm gonna make this story short. But of her three children, both of her sons were killed in gang violence. Neither of them reached the age of 17. Her daughter was shot in the chest with a bullet millimeters from her heart, barely lived. What do you think Ms. Johnson wanted when it happened to her? She ran up and down the street saying, tell them what happened. Tell You saw it. You saw it. You tell them what happened to all the other neighbors. Mm-hmm. But see, she wasn't willing to do it when their kids were getting shot. Mm. She wasn't willing to do it when their kids were getting strung out on dope. But as soon as it happened to her, she wanted that help. And again, that goes back to this telling culture. You know, um, nobody wants to do it unless it benefits them. You know, we don't want to do it for the right reason. Now, let me fast forward to another incident. There's an incident on another street in Compton, right? There's a shooting. And, you know, they killed these two kids from college. They, they had just, they had, they had met these girls at a club. They followed them home. Well, the girl's car broke down. So these two young men, you know, just being gentlemen, you know, Long Beach City College students followed the girls home to make sure that she got home. Now, she lived in Compton and 
some gang members walk down. They see him because now the girl is standing at the car. They're talking and she sees these gang members coming. And, you know, she says, hey, I got to go inside. She goes inside her house where the gang members come up on either side of this car. Long story short, they kill the two guys inside the car. Just shoot them. Mm. And there's actually a kid laying down in the back seat that they never saw. Mm. So I'm the investigating officer and I go around and w- when something like that happens, we do what we call door to doors. Right. And so we knock on the doors and I ask all these people that are now out there, innocent bystanders on the street. And they're no, I didn't see anything. I heard shots that came out. I go knock on this one door and a guy comes to the door. He says, you know, I was in the back of the house, but my neighbor Ray, he saw what happened. I said, well, Who's your neighbor, Ray? I have a Ray right here. He says, yeah. And he looks out his door. He says, yeah, it's that guy right there standing across the street. I said, he he just told me he didn't say anything. He said, he said, what? I said, he told me he didn't say anything. He says, oh, no, give me a minute. I'm going to put my shoes on. He walked out, walked across the street, pulled him aside. He says, you tell him what you told me. We're not going to have this on this street. You tell him what you told me. And he told me, and I said, look, I'm not going to say anything. What I did is I just broadened my investigation. I widened it. See, the way that investigation stopped, I may have I may have been in this window, and that would have been the normal investigation. But all I had to do was go a little bit wider. I widened the investigation, found two murderers that night, got a confession out of one of them, and case off. Because one person stood up and said, you're going to do the right thing. My kids live on this street. We're not going to allow this to happen. And they said, hey, Officer Strong, can you make this so that they don't know he's the one? Absolutely. So now, how does that translate into what we do in law enforcement? It's because, like I said, we're growing up with it as kids. You know, like I said, in elementary school, don't be a tattletale. I'm not a snitch. You don't tell on what your friends do. You don't want them to get in trouble. You know, we're always trying to protect each other. But now it becomes a conflict of we are supposed to do the right thing. We are hired to protect, to serve, to be public servants. And not only are we supposed to do the right thing, but we're supposed to stop people from doing the bad thing. Hmm. But at the same time, all our life we've been told, don't be a snitch. And then you do get into this community and you say, hey, you know, sometimes bad things happen on the job. You know what I mean? And we have to protect each other. So I, I'm here to say that, yes, there is a culture of of covering, up, of protecting. But I want to say this, that it is not a broad, wide culture that is running rampant. There are a lot, and when I say a lot, thousands of officers, deputies, corrections, whoever it is, that do the right thing every day. I've seen it. I've done it. Um, And I think what we find is that, you know, and and it's funny, Stefan asked me this this past weekend. He said, hey, Eric, do people do stuff in front of you that, you know, um, what, what do you do when it happens? And I said, Stefan, people learn very quickly who to do what in front of and who not to. I'm sure all of us know who to cuss in front of. We use discretion. My mom, she's okay with it. My grandmother's not. So 
You know, um, we learn who to smoke in front of, who to drink in front of, you know, whatever those things that are not necessarily bad, but could be socially unacceptable in some circles. We learn who to do it around and who not to do it around. I bet you your friends know who to go ask for money for a loan and who not to. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm just not even going to bother them because they're not going <laughs> to, I know they're not going to loan me any money. They ain't got it. <laughs> yeah, they ain't got it, yeah. So same thing in law enforcement. You know, uh, the guys know very quickly who they can do stuff in front of, who they can't, who they can get away with doing stuff and nobody's going to say anything, who they can't. So they quickly build a little circle of their group that they feel comfortable, you know, um, doing whatever it is they do. In. And, you know, it's, and, it, and it's not always nefarious. It's not always, you know, uh, some kind of malicious, intentional act. Extra sometimes, breaks. Yeah. Extra breaks. You know, uh, sometimes I'm just, you know, um, sometimes you're just tired, mm-hmm. you know? And like I said, it's not always some kind of criminal nefarious activity. It's just, you know, you have some people that have a higher work ethic than others. And so um, those are the groups that will do certain things around each other. And those are the groups that will probably test each other. And those are the groups that will probably, you know, figure out what they can get away with. But I tell you, those groups are small. They really are. But they get all the attention. Right. Um, So did you get to see uh, Dave Chappelle's... um, Eight minutes, 46 seconds. You know, I saw about the first five minutes of it and I was interrupted and I want to go back and see the oh, rest. I just have it's, not. It's worth it. I, it's, I, I hear it's amazing. Yes, it's it's very worth it. But he had mentioned, uh, you know, Chris Dorner. Um, he was that police officer that was fired. And, and I'm bringing this up because I think this also, you know, retaliation uh, when you do say something, when you do speak up, um, you know, retaliation is, it's real. I mean, I've experienced it. I know Tori's experienced it. When you try to do the right thing or bring up, you know, an injustice, uh, you know, it, uh, the backlash of it. Um, is that, I mean, does that, and I, I don't even know the question how I want to pose it, because obviously you don't speak for, for every person, but I guess I I would be asking you when you decide to say something, does that ever play a role in your, is this something that I should say or, uh, you know, me personally? Yeah. I mean, you can't talk for everybody else. Right. I mean, right. No, I I, I know that's what I would, I question retaliation because I've experienced it. So I'm always like PTSD regarding that (laughs) post-traumatic syndrome. I'm like, whoa, Hey, I, I need to slow pump my brakes down and let me really think about it. Is yeah, it worth yeah. it? You know? Yeah. I mean, right there with her. Like, I mean, uh, I, I experienced it. Um, ended up not working for that agency anymore. Not by choice. <laughs> um, and, and how it was directly related to my push as a, a participant in bringing up racial injustice within the workplace. Right. Like, how can we expect to provide just service to a community when our employer itself doesn't treat people of color justly, you know? Um, So even now, and this is several years removed now, if I'm at work, and and I'm talking tiny, right? Like, I'm a social worker, so it's not like, that's a trainer. I don't even do direct service anymore. But um, 
I'll, I'll think about writing an email that may be a little bit controversial, you know, to the power structure. And I'll second guess myself, like, should I send it? Should I not send it? Should I just be like, eh, I'll catch it next time. So I think, you know, um, personally, you, you may be great at it and never question yourself. And I would think you're also human, so you might. Right. Of course not. Of course I'm not. You know, uh, we always question ourselves. And, you know, um, I think it becomes, for me, more of a how do I do this? You know, it becomes a strategic point of view. Um, yes, stepping up and doing the right thing um, and, and one of you know, you know, and I'm going to say this, I, I, I try to go by the models that I've taught. Like I said, I work with kids and, you know, I, I would teach, you know, a lot of curriculums to them and, you know, positive leadership program, do a lot of character development. And one of the slogans that I included in there is that the popular thing is not always the right thing. And the right thing is not always the popular thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to do the popular thing? You want to do the right thing. And the other component is that doing the right thing typically has very little reward compared to doing the wrong thing. The reward is generally internal. Um, and I would use for kids, I would give them the example. It's like, hey, you know, if you steal $5, you know, you know, what can you do with it? You know, you can buy candy, you can buy gum, you can go play video games. You know, you can find out all the things that how that $5 you stole is going to benefit you. But if you don't steal it, the only real satisfaction you have is that you didn't steal it. You know what I mean? Because you can't count the statistic that didn't happen. You know, so why do you leave the $5? You leave it because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So now going back to me, myself, and my career, um, there are times when you see something, and I am not going to lie to you. I'm like, I don't want to be a part of this. I turn around and walk away. Yeah. You know? Um Again, that's telling these people, that's the message. Don't do that in front of Eric. Mm -hmm. There are times when I say, hey, time out. No, no, we're not doing that. You know, I think it comes down to either the position that I've been. I've been in a supervisory position for a lot of years. So it was my responsibility. But also, you know, as a teacher, as a trainer, um, as, a, as a training officer, you know, it comes down to how do I do this so that they learn, number one, you know, um, I get the point across because I'm always looking to see not necessarily to stop what they're doing right at the moment, although that's, that's one benefit. I'm looking to change their mindset later. In other words, if I just make you stop right now, you stop, but you're going to go down the street and you're going to start again as soon as I'm not in the picture. Mm -hmm. My theory has always been to say, hey, how can I make you think about this before you do it again? Mm -hmm. So I'd have conversations to where, like you said, I have retyped <laughs> emails over. Oh, no, I don't want to say that, you know. And I go back to this. It's, it's just life. It's how do you approach any conflict, any problem with anybody? You will approach a conflict different with your spouse or your mate than you will with your kids. You will approach a conflict or, or a disagreement different with your parents than you will with your kids or your spouse. So um, depending on how you do it, yes, you can be retaliated against. 
Um, I wrote a complaint against a detective one year um, for a very, very egregious um, faulty investigation, Mm. you know, and it, it involved me as the victim in the investigation. And this guy I had known since I was a kid. This guy, my father was a police officer and um, I had known this guy, I'd been camping with him and he was known to be lazy. Mm. And when this investigation came to light, the way that he handled it, I typed a long letter and wrote a complaint and submitted it to the chief. One man publicly, one man and and a mentor of mine publicly came out and said, Eric, you are absolutely right. Mm. A whole lot of people caught me in the hallway and said, hey, Eric, you know, we mm-hmm. we kind of agree with you. You know, we see your point, but they weren't vocal about it. Mm-hmm. The chief of police was, how dare you write this complaint or how dare you? Submit? I mean, nothing ever happened. Of it. Mm-hmm. So was I ostracized? No. I mean, uh, maybe in some people's minds, but was it a public blatant ostra, you know, ostracizing? No, because I think. You know, I, I, I think everybody knew that I was kind of correct. So, you know, I think if you become the person, you got to pick your battles. I think if you become the person that just, you know, just everything is a problem, everything is wrong. Um, and I've seen those kind of people, mm-hmm. uh, they lose credibility when they really want to fight a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have some solid foundation or basis for your complaints, so I'm telling you, in my experience, people that had a solid foundation or basis for either their complaints or their issues or when they spoke up against somebody, most times, most times, everybody around them would either silently or openly say, you're right, you have a good point. You know, it's it's not this culture where you become so ostracized for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there are typically the very close friends of the person that's affected by you doing the right thing that have a problem with you. But generally the masses, they're okay with it. You know, they really are at least. And that's been in my experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're on mute. So you guys are still muted. Yeah. She's on mute. Oh, there she figured it out. (laughs) Sorry. Um, you, you didn't want me to hear what you were saying. <laughs> she was cussing you. She was, I was cussing like, well, you. I, you know, the feedback and stuff. Um, so when I think of uh, that video of George and I see, and I, I'm going to give a pass to one of the officers because he was like on the job for four days. You know, that's, that's the, that's the kid that I feel the most uh, for is, is that, he he woke up that day probably excited to put on his uniform and you know just really more most likely you start off with you know you haven't seen a lot of stuff and you're just full of dreams and hopes of what you can do to help so i'm gonna give him that you know that uh the feel bad part but i think about those other officers and you know, imagining, and obviously you can't, I mean, I'm just in your perspective of, you know, there's, they're witnessing the same thing. Is it like, oh, shoot, I got, I got to do something. I don't know what to do, or I got to 
you know, I'm trusting my dude here with the knee on his neck. I'm trusting that he's, you know, not full weight on it. And then you're seeing the bystanders. And I was talking to my mom about this because my mom was like the 70 something year old woman was like, how come they didn't do anything? If I was there, I'd push the officer off, you know. Um, but as a bystander, the desperation that the helplessness in that situation is like, how, you know, how do you help somebody with officers that have like, you know, these full protections to, you know, use lethal force if necessary. And I, I mean, I, I don't know what these officers could have been going on through in the minds in their minds. And I'm not asking you to be a mind reader, but just like, help me understand why they didn't tell this dude, get off, like get off the neck. I can't, I honestly can't because I don't know. I don't know what their policies are. I don't know. I, I can only tell you from a human being. Yeah not from a law enforcement person as a human being my opinion again is that they just didn't take the time to do the right thing i don't care who it is whether you're a police officer a social worker whether you work for ups or you're a doctor you do the right thing again because it's the right thing to do um you know i will say that I mean, here's my perspective. If I was there, I couldn't go bum rushing that officer. I could be killed because, and then George would have been saved and they would have been, hey, we were fine. I, you know, Miss Gomez just bum rushed, didn't know. And, you know, the scene then became chaotic. We had to kill her, mm-hmm. you right. know, because that, that's what it would be. It, it, I saved George, but in the meantime, I'm either killed or wounded and I'm off to prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's the dilemma that as the general public we're looking at as we're seeing this man being killed in our faces and you either save him and then you go down the two who knows what the turn of events could have been i don't know yeah sylvia that's a that's something like i said there i find no rational explanation for that again having been in plenty of fights yeah um, there are thousands and thousands of police officers across this nation and world that find no plausible reason or explanation. Mm-hmm. That. And, and I just want to say this. Um, I have seen it countless times where somebody steps in, another officer steps in and says, hey, mm-hmm. that's enough. Step yeah. out. You yeah. know, or I've seen them come in and push somebody out of the way because, you know, we're human. Yeah. So I give you an example, you know, one officer is dealing with a guy, the guy turns around and just clocks him, socks him right in the face. You know, what do you think is going on in that officer's mind? Number one, he just got hit. He got hurt. Number two, you got a lot of adrenaline. Number three, you are a human being that angers you. You know, you're doing your job and that angers you. So now the fight is on. Other officers came there to help. The first officer, he is sitting up there and he's getting in punches and another guy comes and literally pushes him off. I mean, put knocks him down. And that's all it took because guess what? 
He didn't get mad at that guy. He didn't jump up and jump on that guy's back and try to get back in it. As soon as that happened, he was like, okay, that's what I needed. It happens. Yeah. So why it didn't happen in this particular instance, I have no idea. I have not the slightest clue. I can't rationalize it in my mind why somebody didn't just say, hey, man, I got him. Or somebody didn't just walk up and say, hey, man, why don't we just pick him up and put him in a patrol car? Why are, Why is he still on the ground? Right. You know, um, and again, I'm just going through the different things that have happened in my career, in my situations where I've been in fights. What do you do? You know, yeah. you, you, you know. You get and I up. think that's, yeah, that's where I'm at. Like, up, if the I was there watching that, what do I, what would I do? Like, if you were watching it, what would you do? As a citizen. Not as a as police, a, as, a, as a citizen. As a part yeah, I mean, what can we do? What could you do? You know, I, Other I, than think I, would, it, I think I would walk up to the one that I could find that seemed the most reasonable. And I would walk up to him and I am a police officer. So I've walked up to police officers before and said, hey, I'm not a threat to you. I'm a cop. But you might want to consider this. You might want to think about this. You might want to move this out of the way. You might want to, you know. Um, yeah. So if I was there, I would have walked up to the, I would have, hey, who's the most reasonable? Re I said, hey, man, you might want to get this guy up off the ground. Get this guy off of his neck. You know, and sometimes you have to talk their language and say, hey, do you want to riot here right now? Hmm. Get him up. You know, yeah. and whereas you're thinking, Hey, you're about to, you know, seriously do some damage. It's not necessary. You know, no, I don't think, I don't think that any of those officers were there saying, okay, we're going to do this until we kill this guy. Right. That wasn't, but at the same time, being in this situation, being in this career, being in this profession, you have to know possible outcomes. Yeah. And you have to know what are you accomplishing by doing that? Again, I'm a police officer. Been a lot of fights, and that is not that is not a badge of honor. That's just it goes it goes with the territory where I worked. When you get the handcuffs on, and I was taught this from the very beginning from my dad, who was a police officer 27 years in the same city. Eric, when the handcuffs are on, the fight is over. Hmm. Period. End of discussion. If you put handcuffs on somebody and they want to kick and try to headbutt and all those kind of things, okay, well, you control that, you know. But when the handcuffs are on, you're not still punching, you're not still kicking, you're not getting an extra lick in, you know. And when somebody's laying on the ground face down, could they hurt somebody? Yeah, they could kick you. But how far could they kick you? If somebody's laying on the ground handcuffed, could they hurt themselves? Yes, seen it plenty of times. People start banging their head on the asphalt, on the concrete, mm -hmm. either because there's some type of uh, uh, mental crisis going on, um, they're just angry, um, or they know that if they do that, we're going to come and stop them and move them and put them in another position. Mm -hmm. The question is, what was he trying to accomplish mm. by kneeling on his neck? Mm. That is what I cannot, nobody can come up with because... Uh, I've never been trained to do that. I don't know anybody that's never that's ever been trained to to put their knee right there in that position and listen to a human being cry out and say they can't breathe, cry out for their mother and not have an ounce of compassion 
an ounce of just human decency to shift your weight, get them up, check on them, say, are you okay? Say, hey man, if you stop moving, I'll, I'll get up or whatever it was. To me, that comes down to a question of humanity mm-hmm. and absolute compassion. It has, you know, that, that guy would have done that, you know, um, there's a saying, you want to see the true character of a man, give him power, mm. you know? And when you give a man a badge and a gun, you give them power, you give them authority. It's what they, what do they do with it once they have right. it? Right. So, um, mm. you know, like you said, you, you can't necessarily say why um, or why it happened, but I think you bring up some good points. And so, you know, for me, the question comes down to and you know we're talking about law enforcement but we're very clear on this podcast every institution has racism in it the world has racism in it america has racism in it right we are not denying racism on this podcast in fact we're (laughs) we talk about a lot right and how it infiltrates every single system because that's what our country was founded on right um and so I think the question for me is, like you're saying, you know of thousands of officers that are doing good things every day and we don't hear about it, part because the media is not going to play that shit. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't get ratings, right? Let's, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So stories got to be sensational. And, Absolutely. you know, so um, what, how do we, from your perspective, how do we address racism in law enforcement? It's a thing. Statistics, we can look at, you know, the disproportionate treatment, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know what it might be internally for officers, right? You know, I know from my experience where I, like I said, I had worked and we were working to address that issue from the employee perspective. So it's like, where do we go? Like, we got to get to a different solution because what we are doing ain't working and hasn't been working. Tori, you are absolutely right. And this is such a broad spectrum. Um, There is no one thing that is going to stop this. You know, defunding the police is not going to be the answer. Um, In in all honesty, taking away certain things such as the carotid restraint is not the answer. I mean, it's not the carotid restraint. It's not, well, chokeholds and carotid restraints are two different things. It is the application of it and the ramifications that come from it. So I'll tell you this, racism starts long before anybody ever gets hired as a police officer. There is a hint, if you ask me, of certain biases, um, prejudices, stereotypes, whatever it is, wherever we get it in our lifetime. And then you can come into the law enforcement, you know, profession. And if people are pushing that on you, if the training is saying this particular group of people here, you have to watch out for them because they're violent, you know, the media. Oh, don't get me started on the media because I I talk about to some of my friends all the time, you know, um, you've seen the statistics about, you know, um, whites versus blacks killed and then you hear the arguments about yeah but the 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 numbers and the demographics and i want to say and don't call me i want to say it was july of 2019 it was it was it was last year in 2019 sometime in a very local city here santa ana uh 
one of the local police departments uh, shot and killed a, I want to say it was a teenage girl. I, she appeared white. She had mental disability and she had a BB gun. Did you hear about it? No, but I'll look it up. It okay. sounds vaguely familiar, but okay. it could be confusing and, with another case. So. And so, and it's good that you said that, Tori, because either everybody that I've talked to, they either haven't heard about it or they don't remember it. So that means that the coverage wasn't all that big. And also in 2019, Anaheim, and I probably, maybe I shouldn't be saying these names, but it's all stuff you can look up, had a rolling gun battle where I believe over 70 rounds were fired and a guy was killed as a shootout that, you know, uh, uh, occurred over numerous blocks and, you know, for a period of time. And it's all on video. Mm -hmm. Isn't that something? I mean, 70 some odd rounds in a rolling gun battle through a neighborhood. Isn't that something you think you would hear of? And I ask you, did you hear of that? You know, and what you just said, Tori, it gets no bite. They can't keep going with that. You know, now, if that was a black female teenager, the media would be all over. And here's the problem that I have. There is an editor or a producer somewhere in every news station that is saying, run with this, go with it, or no, don't. As a watch commander at a station, I know that all the local news monitors are scanners. Not only do they monitor their scanners, if it's a slow night, just about every night, every shift, you have somebody from the news desk calling, hey, is there anything going on? Anything you can let me know about? So there's not a night that goes by. So how did the news miss these incidents? They don't miss them. But what do they do? They do exploit the incidents that they can get some repeat action on, you know, um, I think the racism is much bigger than law enforcement. I think that the news looks at it and says, hey, you know, this is, and then on the flip side, on the flip side, I believe that minorities, particularly blacks lives are much less valued at an early age. Mm -hmm. So I, I give you another case. So, oh gosh, this was in the nineties and it was a family that turned down a wrong street and they were met with a barrage of gunfire by some uh, gang members and a little four-year-old girl was killed. I don't know if you remember that it was here in Los Angeles. Um, turned out it was a big media thing, big hype, huge media thing. And, you know, it turns out that they were out at like two or three o'clock in the morning. And the story was they just made a left turn. It was a wrong turn. But then after a little bit more investigation, well, why are you out at three o'clock in the morning? With this little girl in the car anyway, you know, and what it was, was the mother and the uncle were going to buy some dope. Okay. So two weeks before that, we had a very similar incident in Compton. Um, guy, he was a dope dealer, known dope dealer in the neighborhood. Him and his wife and his little girl are driving down the street and rival gang members see his car. They know it. They shoot it up. They kill the little girl, three years old. So that happened first, and then this other incident happened. So now I'm at Compton Police Department, which is a predominantly black police department. You know, the majority of the, of the staff there were black. 
And we go into briefing and a, and I'll be honest, a white sergeant comes in and he's mad. And what he's arguing about is some guys that come in the night before they had brought a gangster in with a gun and the gangster's name was, let's just say he was, you know, little Lebo, whatever it was. And they brought him in and they said, Hey, Sarge, we got little Lebo. He's here. We got him with a gun. They said, okay, come on, little Lebo. We're going back there. And he comes in and he slams this newspaper down. This is about 1995 somewhere around there. And he slams this newspaper down. He says, you know, it really angers me when you guys come in and you call these guys by their street name. And it's almost like you're condoning what they're doing. You're not here to make friends. And what it really angers me. And he slams this paper down. He says, when I see stuff like this and this little girl was killed and it's all on the newspaper Mm -hmm. to me, I could not be quiet any longer. I raised my hand. I said, Hey, sir, um, I'm curious. Why are you so angry about this little girl being killed, not even in our neighborhood, when two weeks ago you signed off on the homicide report that I wrote when Sean, you know, whatever his name, when his little girl was killed? Why was she not that valuable to you? Hmm. And he got to stammering and stuttering and, wah, 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 wah. and the other sergeant came in. Well, Eric, I don't think that's what he meant. I said, no, I know exactly what he meant. Why was her life so valuable now, today, when this other three-year-old little girl's life was not. That didn't bother you then. You didn't come in the next day upset. So I think this racism start, it, it comes and it goes. And if we don't say anything about it, um, it speaks up. I think that the media, and I, like I said, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but I think that a major, major component of, see, see law enforcement is who everybody sees. Let's talk about the various prosecutors around the country, the district attorney. Oh, we did. Oh, we do. We have, We talk about the prosecutors. One. We talk about the judges. We talk yeah. about the the counselors. <laughs> like, like I said, we talk about racism in all institutions. So when we talk about fixing the problem, it is multifaceted. There's a lot of spokes to that will. Mm-hmm. But what I think one of the solutions that well several of the solutions are one is who are we hiring Mm -hmm. and how are we training them Mm -hmm. you know we may not be able to get a psychological test or you know nobody's going to come into the interview and say yeah i I don't like black people i don't like hispanics i don't like gays i don't you know i don't like any no they're going to come in and say i'm here to help people Mm -hmm. but i think it comes down to who are we hiring and who are we putting in certain neighborhoods so if you cannot relate to the community that you're policing. If you can't look at somebody in that community and say, that could be my mother, my uncle, my grandmother, I grew up down the street, Mm -hmm. if that can't be my neighbor, you're not gonna have a lot of compassion for them. You're not gonna be able to relate to them. That is gonna make Mm -hmm. a them, us type of mentality, which is very, very strong, I will admit that, in law enforcement. Us, them. Mm Hiring, and if I can give you guys, I know, tell me if I'm talking too much because I, I get very passionate about no, this. No, please, You're continue. <laughs> let's, let's take two candidates. And I will tell you this, my son who applied for my department, who has never been in trouble, never been arrested, not on drugs, nothing, couldn't get hired for a developmental position. When I say developmental, like a security officer, a custody assistant, stuff like that. I have a cousin who works for the department. She's part of our professional staff, so she's not in law enforcement. 
her son applied to the department. Didn't get hired. Hmm. Why didn't he get hired? Because at 19 years old, he apparently didn't give a two week notice to his previous employment before he quit. But he quit because he was being mistreated at that place. So you have a background investigator that looks at this young black man and says, ah, he's not responsible enough. At 19 years old, for again, we're not trying to give him a badge and a gun. We're just trying to give him a position on the job. Mm -hmm. But then you look at other people in backgrounds and it's like, wait a minute. This guy's been arrested or this guy has this or this guy has that. You know, how is it that they get hired? So I'll, I'll play out this scenario for you. Let's take applicant A. Applicant A is a male or female white, male white, let's say male white. And his parents have been in law enforcement or fire, firefighter, they're public safety. And they live in Orange County, you know, a suburb somewhere, mm -hmm. right? And applicant A is kind of given everything that he needs. You know, you go to school. Mm -hmm. Hey, now that you're going to school, you graduated high school, you're going to go to college. You know, I want you to go to college and maybe he's at a junior college, maybe he's at a Cal State, whatever it is, but he's going there, his parents are paying for it, mm -hmm. you know, um, hey, mom and dad, I need a car. Okay, so mom and dad, what do mom and dad do? What's a good financial thing to do to a kid is put them on one of your credit cards, mm -hmm. start building their credit, right? Mm -hmm. So we put them on one of their credit cards, he starts building his credit. And, but you know what? He sometimes go to class. He doesn't. And he's not a bad kid. He's not doing drugs. He's not getting in trouble, but he can't really find where he wants to go. And, you know, um, mom and dad buy him a car. You know, they buy him a car, but they said, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to buy your car, but we're going to pay the note. But no, now you're working. Now you're in college. We want you to pay the note. Oh, but you didn't pay the note. We're not going to mess up our credit. Mm. You know, we're going to pay the note. And, you know, you were irresponsible with your credit card. You charged it up at GameStops, but mm hey, don't do it anymore, you know, and they mm -hmm. put the phone in his name. So that's applicant A. Mm -hmm. So he goes into the police department and he applies. Hey, man, this kid's got good credit. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been going to school. You know, uh, he's never been in trouble. Now let's take applicant B. Applicant B is a African-American that grew up in the inner city. Mom and dad or mom, maybe a single mother, right, works at a job. Kid gets through high school, gets good grade, gets to college. Mom can't afford to buy him a car. Mm -hmm. Mom doesn't even have a credit card. Mm -hmm. But this kid is working two jobs and is going to school. Now mom, for whatever reason, gets in a car accident and gets hurt. She doesn't have good medical insurance. She doesn't have a lot of benefits at work. So when she's off on disability, her income is cut. Applicant B says, mom, I'm going to help you pay your rent. Mm -hmm. You need some help. You're hurt. I'm going to help you. But in doing that, I have to make decisions. Do I help my mom and pay her rent, mm -hmm. our rent? And now my car note is late. Mm -hmm. Do I help my mom and pay her rent? And maybe I miss a couple of my credit card payments. Mm -hmm. Do I help my mom? And you know what? I had to drop a class because I had to get a second job and I couldn't carry a full load anymore. So I dropped down to six units mm -hmm. from 12. And now they go to the police department and says, oh, man, your credit's messed up. Mm -hmm. You're not staying focused in school. But who's really the more responsible applicant? Mm -hmm. A or B? B is doing everything they need to mm -hmm. do. And then some. And they're being responsible for their parent and maybe their younger siblings. A is just handed everything. Mm -hmm. They are messing up left and right. But mom and dad keep covering for them.
So it, everything looks great on paper. Who do we want in our communities? Do we want this perfect applicant that has absolutely nothing in their life, in their, in their background, but they also have very little life experience? Or do we want the other applicant the same age who's out there working, has a work ethic, has a drive, mm -hmm. has had to make some decisions in their life? Yeah. To me, that is a big component. The hiring standards, the hiring practices, and the people that are in there doing the backgrounds. You know, all agencies will say, we're making a push for minorities. Hmm. Now, that's there's another code. component to that's that. That's code. Huh? I said that's code when they say that. Right. Because, because how many of their numbers do they really increase? Right. What they do is they offer more tests. Right. And what you said was, you know, between applicant A and B, that's investigation. That's how, how is it that we can investigate a little bit more to find out why this applicant, you know, was late on his payments or had to go down a couple credits? Because we want, we're invested in finding out more about him. Is it because he was on drugs or is it because he's helping his mama out? That just takes a couple more steps to investigate. So you know that's if you actually want to hire that person. That's correct. If you that's really correct. want to hire that person. That's correct. You know? um, and and like I said, in, in my experience, they oftentimes find more ways to disqualify than they do to find a way to hire them. Right. And so now let's go to um, communities. You know, um, you look at certain departments, you look at the demographics. I think uh, we mentioned it earlier, why are certain departments 77% white patrolling a 77% black community? Mm -hmm. Well, and that was nationwide, that standard. 77% yes. of all police officers' racial makeup was white. Right. And so now you take these police officers and let's go to applicant A again. Now he's been hired. He's on the department. He grew up in Orange County, California. He grew up in the suburbs. I mean, you're from San Diego. You know Orange County, right? He grew up in Mission Viejo somewhere. And now guess where he wants to go work when he goes to a patrol station? I want to go to Compton. Mm -hmm. I want to go to, you know, South L.A. I want to go work. Why? Why is it that you don't want to go on patrol next to where you live? Why is it that you want to go to these particular stations where the demographics don't match anything mm -hmm. that you've ever experienced. As a matter of fact, you've never even been in that community mm -hmm. until you got assigned there. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with that. It, it, you, are you going there? The question is, are you going there to make the community better? Or are you going there to get your ticket punch, to get your stripes, to get your street cred, mm. to say, hey, I'm, you know, we had a guy many, many years ago almost exact same scenario, came out of Orange County, uh, came to work, you know, the police force. And um, after he got hired, made his training, right? He put a license plate frame on his car, on his new Corvette that he bought and said, ghetto gunslinger. Hey. How long do you think that lasted? Now I'm telling you what happened at Compton. Oh, he was told, no, you're gonna take that off. That's not going here. You will not keep that on your car. He refused. 
they, to say the I, least, to I'm say just, the least, he got taken I'm off his like, phone. I, I'm <laughs> trying to wrap my that's brain. The, that's the minimum thing that they did instead of saying, dude, you ain't going to even touch I, this I, area I was, in a patrol I was nice. I was nice, Sylvia, about what happened to him. But he got the message very clearly that he will not have that on his car. Oh, my God. And, and, and it's exactly what you said. Like, he ain't from there, so he don't know. Like, in my head, I'm like, why the fuck would you even think about doing that? You know? But like yeah. you said, if you ain't from there, you think you got to act a certain way or be a certain way or, like, go in with this preconceived notions. And or you got to prove something. To me, yeah, when you like, say that, you gotta, what you're basically saying is, and if you're white, you're basically saying, remember who's in charge. Yeah. I'm in charge of you folks in this plantation here. Mm -hmm. Remember, I'm the one in charge here. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I think, again, the, the spokes on that wheel are, are so, are, are, are so vast, you know, um, in terms of the racism and how do we combat it in law enforcement? The, the other thing is, is again, I will be honest with you. You can be a racist if you want to be. However, you don't treat people like you're a racist. I can't control what you think. Mm -hmm. We have a First Amendment. We have a right to free speech. But if you can go into a community that is not like yours, and again, I don't care if it's the gay lesbian community. I don't care if it's the black community. I don't care if it's an Asian community. I don't care if it's a Hispanic community. I don't care what it is. If you can go into any community and treat the people in that community with some compassion and respect and be there to make that community better. I don't really care if you're a racist. I, I mean, I, and, I, and that may sound contrary to what people believe. I don't care if you don't like a certain race just because of that race. The fact of the matter is in your position as a police officer, can you provide public service to that community and not let your racial bias get in the way. I don't know if that can happen or not. I mean, you, you, you guys are into uh, are probably more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, as you were saying that, that, I was thinking. Um, we I, haven't I don't interviewed think, that unicorn yet. Uh, yeah, I don't think it exists because we're on the lookout. Just psychologically speaking, uh, racism is driven through a lot of implicit bias, which comes into play from all the information that we're taking in at any given time, right? From how you're raised, the education system, et cetera. That's why we talk about, we know it's everywhere. And so in my, in my theoretical opinion is it, you can't do that. Right? Like, I think if that's what happened is people try, but then they get, then they get caught. Right. Because that implicit bias is always there. And you talked to, you know, like about who you hire, who to hire. Yeah. It, that's in part of it. Right. Like, so it just breeds it. And so, I mean, like you said, it's a, it is a multi-sprong, pronged thing. And but, but we're, we're touching on a little corner, but I think these are the corners that we have to start touching. Right. Like, um, we have to start talking about these things, especially as people yes. of color. Like, again, like you said in the beginning, if anything has come from this, there seems to be an awakening and a unity happening. Is there mm -hmm. some chaos with it? Yeah. I mean, my belief system is that that's how I, 
things have to happen chaotically in order to change, right? You look at, like, at least an Adam, you look at, you know, growing, etc. So not that I like it. I don't like to see all the, the chaos, but I feel like as we start having these conversations around that, that we see that, no, I don't think you can be homophobic, racist, sexist, and still treat people with compassion because that implicit bias is always living in in your brain. But Tori, don't we all have an implicit bias about something? Yes, yes. You know, yes. And, and so I just want to tell you something that happened to me one night, and I I know uh um this probably won't be well received by my my other half, but one night, you know, and and I've you know we usually lived in a community. I lived in Inglewood, and one night my my wife and I were driving home, and we got in this big argument. She was driving, big argument, and she stopped at a stoplight, and I got out the car. I'm not being in this car anymore. And I'm walking and I'm walking through England. She's driving alongside me. Now I'm a police officer. And as I'm walking in Inglewood up Crenshaw Boulevard, I see some guys standing out around a car, you know, um, same side of the street. And they got their pants sagging. They got their do-rags on. I'm not afraid of that at all. I mean, like I said, that could be my family member, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm walking towards them. I'm saying to myself, Oh, Lord, you know, is, is am I going to have a problem? Are they going to hit me up? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what you doing in this neighborhood? I start thinking about all these different things that could possibly happen. Why? Because I'm looking at them and I'm saying, OK, this is the way they're dressed. These are the colors they have on. And as I'm walking towards them, you know, my wife, she's rolling alongside of me, pleading with me to get in a car. Eric, get in a car, get in a car, get in a car. You know, she's got the window down. And. I walk up on them and I'm just waiting for one of them to say something. And the guy looks at me and he nods me and says, Hey brother, keep your head up. Mm-hmm. And I said, thank you. I needed that. You know, and we kept going, but that implicit bias was with me as well. I, my, my, my antenna was raised, you know, and now maybe my antenna is raised because I can spot a gang member and I can spot another gang member. I can look at a guy walking down the street with a red do-rag on and red shoes and say, okay, he's either a gang member or he's not, or, you know, he's trying to get him on. You know, sometimes that's just what kids wear, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, but I guess my question to you is, don't we all have some sort of implicit bias about something? And doesn't it come down to not necessarily having it or not having it, but what we do with it? Uh, yes, we, we all do. And, uh, you know, that came to my my story earlier was this classism. Like now all of a sudden I'm too good to go to that park because I'm nervous. I'm afraid I'm, you know, uh, whatever it is when it's like this is the kind of neighborhood I grew up in. I I don't understand how all of a sudden now I'm too nervous to walk around in my own neighborhood. Um, So but but again, we you know, there's a difference between unwarranted fear, you know, which is that. It's irrational. It's irrational for me to assume, uh, you know, African-American little girl selling water. And now all of a sudden I got to be calling the police because she ain't got no permit and blue, blue, bloop and or Miss Amy Cooper, you know, at at the park. You know, I'm going to call the police and say an African-American man is attacking me. You know, that kind of stuff is is blatant. And, you know, and I also talk about our internalized racism it's a journey too just like you know uh if you want to become a white ally it's a journey 
it's not all of a sudden oh, I'm woke and now I'm fully woke and I ain't got no ism still in me. Uh, but it's a journey of recognizing those things. It's a journey of recognizing that, yes, we all have them. Um, the system is not, you know, set up for me. Um, it is set up for some white folks. Um, and especially if you're white and wealthy or middle class, it's set, really set up for you. It's not set up for white poor, um, you know, but we have to work through all of those things in order for us to be able to say, to have that empathy that you're talking about. Like if, I, if I'm going and policing in a, uh, a white neighborhood, I would think, I would feel just like great because what do I associate white as is safe. Those are the words that we use. Oh, I was in a good neighborhood. We don't know what the good neighborhood means. You were in a white neighborhood maybe scattering few of, you know, some sprinkles of pepper in there. But other than that, it's salt. Um, and when you say bad neighborhood, what do we, what does that mean? Communities of color. Like you never ever hear, oh, that's a good neighborhood over there when it's predominantly people of color. So our language and our code is definitely helps us perpetuate the same thinking that is placed on us from this white supremacist system. Like we use it all the time. It's, it comes out naturally without us even thinking about it. Yeah. I and I think, I think, uh, um, yeah, 100, we all have implicit bias. We all have bias because our brain, I mean, our brain was built that way, right. To recognize threat, to recognize safety, um, categories, but again, kind of what, you know, Sylvia saying is, unfortunately, we all have been given a message of what is good and bad, good or bad, you know, in quotes. And that message has consistently been through the lens of white supremacy. And so, you know, for me, I think too, around how do we, what do we do? How do, it's about learning that we all have it, right? Accepting we all have it. And how do we build enough self-awareness and mindfulness that we catch ourselves, right? Like, like Sylvia said, she caught herself afterwards, like, oh yeah, I was having some kind of feeling about this part because they said it was shady, right? Um, or, you know, when we do it and then that's when we recentered, like, okay, what is actually happening in front of me? Kind of like with your scenario, right? You, your, your brain, your amygdala said, okay, wait a minute, we might have a threat here, right? So your brain did what it was supposed to do. Right. You remained in, in enough composure because your lid didn't flip. Right. Your 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 trauma response system didn't go offline or uh, engage. So then your frontal lobe's offline and you can't make good decisions. Right. So you stayed in that at least center place enough to be on guard, but not lid flipped. Right. So for me, from a psychological point of view, there is a piece of teaching and helping each other become more aware of these things right that we do all have them like I've done I do equity trainings and that's one of the things that I say is that every one of us in here has a bias I have a bias y'all have a bias I'm going to make assumptions throughout this training you're going to make assumptions but part of what we have to do is learn that we automatically do that as a form of survival right mm -hmm. and then how do we retrain the brain to be more aware of it and maintain our frontal lobe system so that we can make 
effective decisions because once that lids flipped, we're not making good decisions. Right. So even the, the, the George Floyd thing, right. Uh, I do have my personal feelings about that guy. I think he's a fucking racist and he didn't give a shit. That's my personal opinion (laughs) is, but those officers and those people around that may have been scared and their fight, fight or freeze response has been flipped. You know, freeze is a, is a trauma response. So I don't know. I guess I think that there are people that we can help build that awareness, which will help combat this racism and oppression that has been created. And I do think there is things within our system we've got to change because number one, like education, why aren't we teaching all of history, you know? And so I I get mad on occasion that I have to realize that all the things that I didn't learn around um, black history in my growing up, right? I'm an adult and I'm learning this stuff and we, we do have to change that. So again, I think it's a multi-pronged thing. Um, Somebody, somebody said it best. um, And I'm probably going to mess up what they said. They said, America is not ready to face their own evils um, and, and make amends for their own, you know, devilish ways. And I, and I don't remember exactly what was said, but it reminded me of, I went to a training one time and this was a national training within law enforcement. And when you talk about tolerance, when you talk about building tolerance, when, when the title of the, of the course is tolerance for different communities or something along that lines, I remember walking into a, a, a course at a, at a conference. And so you can kind of go to these different breakout sessions and guess what always comes up at all of these tolerance trainings? America always talks about the Nazis. That's what comes up when we talk about training for tolerance and how bad Hitler was and, and how bad and when, when good people do nothing, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. But we won't talk about our own history. Right. We won't look back and say, regardless of what it is, whether it was the putting the Japanese in internment camps during World War II, whether it was, you know, Native Americans and, 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 and what was done to them, whether it was slavery, we won't talk about that. We always want to go and, and, and who is, the, who is the, the epitome of evil in America? Right. It's usually Hitler. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> And then we, but we yeah. say, uh, but you all forget about it. That was a past. Like they, it, that's even yeah. the same thing that's still going on. Hey, exactly. you, you, you weren't a slave. You, why, you, you didn't experience slavery, and I never bought and sold anybody. So get over it. Move it along. What about segregation? Mm-hmm. That's correct. That, uh, exactly. Integration. I mean, that was that was not exactly. that long ago. Exactly. You know, so, right. So. You know, the, that's why I was telling somebody, I said, the act of slavery, buying and being a slave, that is gone. That was abolished. But oppression, the oppression of slavery still remains. You have the same oppressive thoughts. You have the same oppressive tactics. It just looks different. It doesn't mean that I don't experience that oppression because slavery is now gone or you know, we still can't live in the same areas. You know, the the way the wealth gap has now we you'll never be able to make up what was done to people of color because of your policies that built wealth 
for white communities and continues, especially when we look at gentrification in communities. That's another that's another oppressive tactic right there when we start talking about gentrifications of neighborhoods that now you white folks want because they're more convenient to downtown. They're now in these up and coming, quote unquote, up and coming neighborhoods. And I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, what does up and coming mean? It means we're white, putting more white folks in there. That's what up and coming means. Our, our dollars are going towards these areas that used to be bad neighborhoods, right? And now we're investing development dollars and and so prices go up. Now, how can these folks that have lived there for generations, how can they afford these houses now? Because now that house there is $1.4 million that you're selling and they have, their property taxes have gone up to where if they're on a fixed income, I can no longer afford my property tax anymore. Right. I, and then we're moving them out to somewhere else. And and and, and they get the, the bottom price, whereas now you're going to, you know, revamp that whole house and get top dollar now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do, you, how do you fight a system like that? It's like, uh, to where the point is, protest. We got her going. We got her going. Oh, I know. We got her going. And she's on a roll. You know. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean, you you know, there has to be voices that speak up. But one of the biggest issues is education. Right. You know, um, you know we talk well, don't about go, this. Don't get me started thing. on that one. You, you look at, for example, um, Los Angeles Unified School District. You look at schools that are inner, inner city. You look at schools that are on the west side. Why are these schools so clean and why is their grass green? Why do they have enough water? Why do they have enough supplies? Why are their books not all torn up? And so it's because in a lot of ways in certain communities, we don't have voices. Mm -hmm. And when we do have voices, they, okay, yeah, all right, great, no problem. Thank you. We heard you, you know, um, because we don't have the education or the wherewithal to actually hold them accountable in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we talked about, you know, what is the problem? You know, one of the problems is I have gone out and tried to recruit, you know, and, and, and not working in recruitment. I never worked in recruitment, but I've talked to young people. I had this one young lady who was very bright, very intelligent. She was putting together some community things that were, were awesome. And she was working on her master's degree, I think in sociology or social work. And she said, I'd like to get on the department and affect change, but I don't want to be a police officer. Hmm. And, and I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. Why don't you want to be a police officer? Well, because of everything that's going on right now, I don't want people to look at me like, and I said, but how do you affect change if you're not willing to get inside? You know, you get inside and if you're one more person that treats this community with respect and compassion, you're setting an example for everybody that sees you, you know, and you're going to eventually train somebody on how to do this job and you're going to train them how to do your way. And so, yes, you're one person, but if we get you and then we get your neighbor and we get to, but you have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of young blacks are just like, I don't want any part of. And and to me, I will tell you this. I will say this. 27 years, there's never been a time that I wish I did something else. Hmm. I think that law enforcement is an outstanding profession. I think that they do a world of good. 
I think I, I know that the communities should not think they can exist or survive without them. I, I really do. Um, have there been some bad people and bad incidents that have seriously tainted the profession? Absolutely. Here's the only problem I have with that is that when you see a law enforcement officer do something bad, you then want to jump to all law enforcement officers are bad. At, we have many stories, and I won't say any specific, but we have many stories of doctors who have molested people, mm-hmm. dentists mm-hmm. who have molested people while they're under anesthesia, mm-hmm. doctors who cut off the wrong leg. Well, what happens when they cut off the wrong leg? They still got to go cut off the right leg now, you know? Mm-hmm. So they cut off the wrong leg and you're missing that one, but the other one still has the the the, the gangrene or the infection. And we, But guess where you're going to go when you get a toothache or when you don't feel good? You're going to say that doctor is bad. You're going to say that dentist is bad, you know? But people don't say that police officer is bad. And I understand why. I understand why because... The majority of the people that are that are saying that have probably had negative interactions with law enforcement themselves, you know, and how do we correct that? Education. I think we need to get more people from the communities in the departments. You know, I I hear departments all the time, you know, again, national that will say, oh, well, our our percentage of people in the in the department matches the community. You know, my community is only you know, uh, 12% black and we're roughly 10, 11% on a department. <laughs> but how many contacts within your agency are represented by blacks? I mean, there's an overrepresentation. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if it's only 12% black, but 64% of your arrests, 64% of your contacts, 64% of your uses of force, 58% of your complaints are coming from that 12%. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I'm going to go a step further. How do you expect to be, uh, and and we look at it equity lens, when you stop at 10% saying, is that good enough to say our force has 10% people of color? Does that mean you're doing something really great? Why does it have to stop at 10%? Shouldn't. You should be hiring the best people for the job. You should be hiring where it's diverse all over the place because with diversity, is when you start to get, you know, this, uh, hopefully you're, cause I'm not saying just cause you hire me, I'm going to be like the best police officer ever, you know, cause I'm a person of color, uh, you know, I'm just saying, but with diversity comes a multitude of different ideas, a multitude of different ways of different thinking of people being able to say, yeah, I, you know, that this is how, cause I've been in, classrooms where I'm the only person of color and they're talking about diversity <laughs> and I've been in multiple classrooms and you know that because you raise your hand inevitably <laughs> somebody is going to say something stupid inevitably and I'm like do I have to say something and I'm waiting around and nobody of any white says anything because they don't they don't get it so if your department is only 10 percent of people of color 
and you're, you know, you all are doing policies or whatever. These, I, I mean, I could see myself looking around and saying, are we going to say something? What, what are we going to say? What, what, what am I going to say that then is going to be like, oh, there she goes. The chip on her shoulder, the, you know, always coming up with something that don't make sense to us. She's going to want, you know, you become that troublemaker where that's why I'm saying, no, 10% should not be the limit. Raise that sucker up, raise it high so that you can ha- your department could be diverse, not just, oh, we got a sprinkle a few people in here mm-hmm. and we're good. But that's what I see happen. It's like you you touting a 10% like it's really something great. No, it's not great. There's something going on that you can't raise it even higher. Like, is it, oh, we met our quota, so let's move it along? I just, I, uh, ugh. Anyway, sorry, Eric. I just get fired up. No need to apologize. Hey, Eric, I just want to check in with you uh, time-wise. Are you good? I know you had something that you need to, okay. I'm good. Is there something else you want to okay. fire away? Oh, yeah. There's. I, I, I was going to bring up about uh, diversity training in as training officers. Like when you're training, is that something that is discussed or is it all we're doing is tactical, the law, the this, the that? Is there any diversity training at all as part of? Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's there's diversity training um, and there's, there's quite a bit of it. Um, is it required? Yes, uh, it's been a long time since I've been through the academy, but I'm pretty sure, at least in California, it so, is part of one of the classes. Um, what about although, huh? what about regular? So, like, you got the academy, but like every year, I mean, even I used to be a probation and, officer. We had yearly re- restraint training. We had yearly sexual harassment training. Is there a yearly and regular equity training requirement by officers in in, in your experiences where you've worked? I want to say no, and I could be wrong. I, I well, the fact that you know, I see diversity training opportunities quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to go, and a lot of times there will be diversity training when you need the training because you're mm-hmm. not demonstrating that mm-hmm. you know you're a very diverse person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but whether it's required as a you know recurrent. Uh, training, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, but and it, we were talking about this too, just uh, Tori and I, because we were talking about even in education, when you're you're training people to work in, you know, predominantly say, because she went to school of social work, counseling, psychology over here, uh, one one diversity training throughout all of you know my higher education. Um, and yet we go out into these fields where we're coming in contact with, with people of color um, and agencies that, oh, you got your diversity training. Okay, great. And they're now optional. Uh, the, you know, there is. No, let, me, let, me, let me jump in real quick, Silver, because I just remembered something. So there is a cultural diversity training update. I believe we have to go through it every two years, but. To be honest with you, that typically involves going to the Museum of Tolerance, and that typically involves. I mean, now that I re, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I said I don't know, but yes, there is. And again, we go to the 
museum of tolerance and we see everything all the atrocities of, hmm. of, of hitler and they have a little diner where you walk through for you know uh probably an eighth of the whole museum is about the diner and segregation and you know the civil rights movement um that, wait that that's the actual training you go to a museum there's some classroom yeah there's okay. some classroom uh sessions to it it's typically uh I, well, I want to say, and, and don't quote me, I want to say it's a yeah. two-day training. One day is classroom session. Another day is you go to the museum for like half a day, and then you go to a classroom. You know, and, and don't get me wrong. I've gotten a lot out of it. I, I have, I, I met, you know, um, a concentration camp survivor, mm -hmm. you know, which, which was amazing to me. Mm -hmm. But if you're going, if you have some people that are going to that training because it's mandatory, because they have to, they're looking at it as, okay, I'm not in work. You know, I normally work nights, uh, but guess what? I'm going to be off tonight because I went to this train during the day and I get to go see my family. I get to go see my kids. Um, everybody, and I'm not saying this is wrong, training is vitally important. Mm -hmm. But training is not the answer to everything because a lot of the training doesn't change the mindset. So when you go to this training, when you go to the academy, when you go to patrol school and you get all this training and then you go get in a car with your field training officer and he says, everything you learn, throw it out the window. I'm going to show you how we do it. Hmm. What good is your training? Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, now that doesn't mean that they throw literally everything out the window. But when they say, hey, this is how you do a traffic stop and you have to have reasonable suspicion. You have to have probable cause. You have, to, And then your training officer comes in and says, oh, no, we don't need that. We'll figure it out as we go. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know it happens. You know, um, being a, a black man, like I said, living in Inglewood, um, drove up and down a particular area of a particular station for my own department that I worked in. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I at one time had a Cadillac Escalade truck and I'm driving down the street. I'm a police officer. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what I did and didn't do. Mm -hmm. And I get pulled over as I'm driving this way down the street, a car coming this on a side street sees me go by and I get pulled over. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they walk up to the car, they're trying to open my door, get out the car. Whoa, wait a minute. For, for what? Come again? Did you pull me over because I had a traffic violation? And, 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 and interestingly enough, I had just left that station a month prior. I had worked there hmm. and I left there and I had to tell the guy. Now, I had to tell the guy, hey, time out. You might. And I didn't say it this nicely. I said, you might want to take a few minutes to really look at me and see who I am. His partner recognized me and he's. You know, hmm. and this guy, he's all on level 10. And we get into a, you know, and, and I'm like, hey, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You know, and I know this guy, he had a lot of complaints. And I said, this is why you get all these complaints. And I said, what, did you pull me over because I committed a traffic violation or am I some kind of suspect? Why are you trying to open my car door and get me out of the car? Because they can. Mm -hmm. And they do it all the time. Another. Now, I got to ask you that. Yes. Can they? Can they, I mean, constitutional-wise, can they do what they did? Traffic stops are inherently dangerous. It has been ruled that they're inherently dangerous. Um, there are variables that say it's more, it's safer for me to get you out of the car 
and bring you back. Here's the question, Sylvia, that I have to ask. Would you do that in Palos Verdes? Mm. Would you do that in Malibu? If you mm. pull somebody over for speeding, do you walk up to the car and give them a ticket? Why, if you pull somebody over for speeding in South LA, do you walk out, get them out of the car, put them in the back seat of your patrol car, stand them on the curb? What is it that makes you mm. say that I am fearful of this particular stop? Mm. And again, it goes back to that implicit bias. Mm -hmm. I am in a community where there, there are maybe some gang members, maybe some criminals. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I treat everybody the same mm -hmm. because I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that is all constantly the justification. I'm not saying me. I'm saying right, that's right. what the, the articulation okay. is. Um, I've been trained that this is a dangerous area. And dangerous people frequent this area and there's dangerous people there. And again, I go back to this. I worked in Compton for many years. Probably one of the highest per capita gang populations in the country. Again, it's not just me. Thousands of all, I can walk up to anybody on a car stop in Compton and say, can I have your license and registration? Did it thousands of times. Mm -hmm. Didn't need to get people out of the car just because they were black, and I was. That's fearful. what I wanted to hear. Yeah, that's it, it, that's what I'm like. How many I, how many of those stops really turned into? Oh shit! I could have been killed. A lot of them. I'm okay. not even being funny. A lot of them. So let me let me tell you. Uh, Let's say a quick out of five hundred. What was uh, a lot like? Say out of five hundred. Would you say four hundred were? Oh shit! You know. Um, and I'm just no, 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 no. Again, if you're, you know, working in a city like Compton, there wasn't a whole lot of traffic cops that just did traffic violations. Yeah. We were so busy responding to emergency calls okay. that it was more like a lot of time we pull up next to you. Hey, slow down. And right. then we're speeding off to go to the next call. Okay. You know, a lot of times you see stuff and it's slow. It's boring. You know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly egregious. Um, you know, you, you do traffic enforcement. That's just yeah. part of your job. So yeah. one day I'm working by myself and I see a car speeding and I go after it. Car goes, hits a couple of corners. Um, I'm trying to pull this car over for speeding. It turns into a pursuit. This pursuit turns into this guy bailing out of the car. With a, I mean, it was almost something out of a movie yeah. with a cloud of dust. And as I'm looking at the car that he pulled over to the side of the road, He's in the middle of the street shooting at me and he's hitting a patrol car. Now, all I wanted to do was pull the guy over for speeding. Yeah. So what would have happened? I mean, fortunately for me, he decided to run. And as he was running, he didn't get far enough away. And he decided to shoot it out. Now, what would have happened if he would have just pulled over and let me walk up to the car? I would have been at a huge disadvantage out of the car. He's in the car. He knows. Now this guy was wanted for a double murder that he had committed um, maybe two days before. And he was wanted. He knew he was wanted because Long Beach police had already hit, I believe his sister's house or one of his family houses. They knew who he was. Oh, he was already on high alert. He was already on high alert. So this is what every law enforcement officer deals with. Every time they pull somebody over, that person knows what they just did. You don't. You could just be pulling somebody over because they didn't use a blinker. But in their mind, it's like, even if it's just a regular 
person. It's not a gang member. In their mind, I just stabbed my wife. Yeah. I just robbed a store. I just did whatever it is I did. They're going to catch me. That person can be dangerous. So when I say this, I ask the public to know that every single stop could be that particular incident. Now, here's where we have to have some training, competence, discretion. Every single stop is obviously not that. Right. So when you ask me out of 500 working in Compton, if I made 500 stops, I may have got 50 or 60 guns out of the car. You know, if I'm working in Pasadena on Colorado Boulevard, if I made 500 stops, I might never get a gun out of the car. So different neighborhoods are different. Right. Uh, there's no question about that. But but the percentage remains low, though. It, it I mean, is, it's yes. 550, yeah. that's still a, a very low percentage. I would say so, yes. But what my point is, is that even though that happened to me, I can't now go up to every single car and with my gun out and pull people out of the car because this guy shot at me. And, and I'll tell you what I did. You know, after this incidents like this happen, you have to have, you know, you go three days off, you go see the psychologist, you know, they make sure you're okay, you're suitable to go back to work, go back to work. And I'm working a one-man car again. I pulled over every single car that I saw a traffic violation. And when you, back then we didn't have computers. You get on the radio, hey, you know, uh, you know, whatever my call sign is, Adam X-Ray Traffic. And they go, go with your traffic. You give them a license plate. I go, Adam X-Ray Traffic. And I had a very good dispatcher, um, a senior dispatcher. And she knew what I was doing. I was scared. I was scared. And the only way I knew how to get out of that was to get back on the horse. And what she did was she says, hey, call the station. I called the station. She said, Eric, stop. She said, you're okay. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. being in those situations, I mean, it's scary, you know, and you're thinking I'm not going to see my family again. And even right now I have goosebumps talking about this, but yeah. you know, um, that doesn't mean that you have to treat everybody bad. You know, right. what I did was every car I walked up, I said, hi, my name is so-and-so. I pulled you over because you were speeding. You know, we have to want to do that. If we don't respect the community, if we don't respect the people, we don't care how we treat them. Right. And if we don't care how we treat them, there's a lot of people that are just going to treat them bad for no reason. You know, right. and there's a lot of police officers out there that have never been in the situation I have. But guess what? Somebody showed them, hey, this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's how they do it. And I, we were talking about this um, previously on another podcast was about mental health because being, and we talked about it being a police officer, um, you know, it, it inevitably like, cause I, I don't know if I saw it, but you kind of look like you kind of, you know, got caught up in some emotion there when you were talking about it. And we've talked about it on this podcast, which is, uh, the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder that comes from situations like that and having resources and people feeling like, especially police officers, where you might be like, hey, I just got to suck it up. And, you know, rather than being able to be given the time to really process, to be able to talk about it, to understand that uh, it is a uh, brain development thing and not everybody has the ability, well, I don't care whether you're a police officer or whatever, has the ability to really access that top part of your brain that can help you work through like you like you were talking about like you know I had to work through it I had to 
not everybody has that ability because of past traumas and whatever else because they bring baggage with them in relationships on jobs Uh, there's reasons why people want to be a counselor there's reasons why people want to be a police officer and it's typically has something to do with your past um but you know that that's part of what we've been talking about is do other than say a situation like this is it encouraged for police officers to get mental health support or is it looked at like oh you what why why are you going do i gotta be watching you because you might be a you know the you, next you getting soft that goes off the chain yeah <laughs> getting soft on us want to have and all right. them feelings <laughs> right in recent years it has become increasingly um more open and okay to do that um and again i can only go back like i said to the early 90s in the early 90s um it was mandatory if you were in a um what do we call it i, I mean typically if you were in a shooting yeah. You before you could come back to work, you had to go see a psychologist and get cleared. And that was pretty much standard across the board. But, you know, I'll tell you, um, a friend of mine and I were talking just the other day. And I, and I that was what, before you go on. Is that like three sessions? How many? What, what would be one. cleared? Well, I had been in several of them. It, one. One, one session. One? If he, if he one said session. For, for you, you almost facing the end of your life, it required one you, session. If you went in there and they evaluated you and they said you were okay, they said you were okay. Now, if for whatever reason they saw some, uh, some maybe PTSD, if they saw some signs that they felt like maybe you weren't okay to go back, they could call the department and say, no, he's not ready. He needs some more time off. I want to see him again. And what does that signal to the higher-ups? We mean we got to send, we got to keep them out of the field again. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, like, I mean, you know what that signals is that's another person that's out of the streets that you know we're still but, paying. But I, would I it be, hmm? you know, because I part of what you know is this mentality that we somehow have to be okay. Like, what happened to you that somehow you got to get over it quick? You know, uh, when no, when the reality is, if you if you were attacked by a bear. We would know, we would be okay with you being off of work for weeks. Well, because you have injuries. However, but if you what were about the mental injury? By, what, what, <laughs> if you were, what if you were chased by a bear and not attacked by a bear? Right, which is a mental still, injury. There you go. Those mental injuries, yeah. you know. That, I and, mean, that when you said one, of course, my thought is like, oh, yeah, and I bet you people learn how to play the game to get back on shift. Right. I mean, I am a little of a cynic around things, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure there's a little bit of that. And as a ther- former therapist, there's the long term effect of it. Right. That you right. can't get in one or two, three sessions, even if, let's say four. Right. Maybe they say, you know, come back a few times. You can't get to that in four sessions. So what is the long term around you know, like you said, it sounds like recently it's been a little bit more encouraged to get um, yeah. to get assistance, to get help, to go to therapy, because we know from brain science what trauma does, even the, up to the most resilient person. So mm-hmm. for me, it's like, how are we taking care of the men and women that do this work, right? 
because you're going to see it whether you, whether you want to or not you're going to see it you've yeah you've seen stuff that the general public has never ever seen and yet we're expecting you know police officers to maintain and are we are we giving them the opportunities to unpack you know unpack things or are we asking them to stuff it in the bag and hopefully it doesn't open up in a time where it's not time for that to come on un- unglued you, you know unglued I, I i think traditionally it's the latter but i will tell you um hundreds and hundreds of police officers um and firemen who see a lot as well and even doctors you know do doctors that in emergency rooms are they offered the same you know type of 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 mental purging you know i think there's a lot of professions out there that could use it and benefit from it i would say this that over over like i said the hundreds of you know law enforcement personnel that i know 98% of them deal with it pretty well there are very small percentage that i've seen that have gone out on stress that don't deal with it very well um could some of it have been you know caught earlier i believe so but like i said back in the 90s you know when i first started there was very little of talking about that mental health component yeah. you know like i said in recent years it is pushed and it's encouraged and you know myself other supervisors a lot of people even if it's not job stuff if it's family stuff if any type of issue going on yeah it's absolutely encouraged i know by several of my peers that i've seen it's encouraged hey we have these services you know on the department these services are available you have great medical insurance you can go and you know and and, and go see somebody and talk to somebody but it's like anything you're still going to have a lot of people say, oh, man, I don't need that. Or, man, don't go do that. You know what I mean? You want somebody in there messing with your head. So, I, I and I don't necessarily think it's just law enforcement. You know, again, um, oh, it's fire. It's not. Yeah, no, it's. You it's, know, it's, it's doctors. It's not. You're, yeah, definitely. I mean, doctors have one of the highest suicide rates. Pilots. Because, pilots. Yeah. Um, doctors have one of the highest suicide rates because they are afraid to go get help for fear of losing their license. Um, in the social work community too that there's a stigma to go get help as a social worker because one because you know what's happening in the room right like when you're a therapist that goes to therapy you're like i know what you're doing here you know um and there is the licensing of you know if you're suddenly deemed unfit because of your mental health will take away your license. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, again, I'm biased because as a therapist, I want everybody to go to therapy. Like, <laughs> it's good all the time. In fact, it's great when you're not in crisis because then you get to talk about things that maybe you haven't talked about. So, I I have a huge bias around it. So, um, but yeah, you're right. It's in every profession. I think a lot of these teachers probably <laughs> yeah. uh, experience a lot dealing with, you know, young kids all the time. But, yeah. You know, I, I think that the mental health component um, is is important, you know, um, I, I but I, I do believe that, again, it all comes down to what are you taught? What are you trained? It, you know, your mentors, when I say your mentors, so I don't know if you know in law enforcement, you go through an academy. And then when you come out of the academy, if you work for a sheriff's department, of any county, you'll typically go and work a jail. If you don't work for a sheriff's department, you go to a municipal agency 
you'll typically have a little bit of an orientation and then you hit the streets running, mm -hmm. you know, and that first TO or that second TO. And a lot of times the training program is typically in California, about six months. You can get off early if you excel, but typically in that six months, most agencies will have you ride with three different TOs mm -hmm. over different shifts in different yeah, areas. What's TOs? A training, training officer. officer. Yeah. Or FTO field training officer is what we call it. And Either you'll ride with three over two months, two, and then they can extend you if you're not, you know, doing very well. But it's so important what those training officers, those first contacts, those people that are first teaching you the job is very important. But what is also key, and, they, and, they, and I remember them specifically telling this in the academy. Those of you who already know who you are, you will be okay. Those of you who don't know who you are and you are only your job, you guys are going to have problems. Hmm. And I remember Mr. Mitchell in the Academy saying something very, very close to that. He says, there are going to be some of you that you didn't figure out who you were in life until you got the badge. Hmm. Then there's all of you that who said, you know who you are with or without the badge. And even if you stop wearing the badge tomorrow, you're still going to be the same person. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there, there is a lot of that. And, you know, I think if you didn't feel secure with who you were prior to getting that uniform and that badge and that gun, you will be easily swayed when you get to a training officer. That training officer can either teach you, this is how you treat people, and it'd be good, or they could teach you, this is how you treat people, and it'd be bad, and and, you know, that influence may stick a lot stronger if you're not secure with who you are prior to going there. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just it's yeah. it's something. And, and that goes back to, you know, how do you deal with things? You know, how do you deal with things when you see a. When you see somebody that's been shot, when you see somebody that's been stabbed, when you see somebody or, in a car accident, or, yeah. or jail, when you see somebody in a car accident that's got a limb or something, does your training officer or your sergeant come out there and say, hey, are you okay? Right. Or hmm. do they come out there and say, hey, rookie, hey, suck it up, hmm. you know what I mean? Hey, get, get used to it, um, you know, and, and, and that's the only support that you get. Those yeah. things are important. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%, you know, because it is, it is a rough job. So I give you, I give you props. Uh, it is a rough job. Um, and like you said, it is it, but it's, it's exactly that it is a job. You know, it's not who you are. It's not, uh, you know, I had to learn that the hard way too. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a job. If you don't have that job, you'll have another job somewhere. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes we build our identities around, uh, you know, our jobs and that's just, this country, because this country is built on work, 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 um, you know, and I think that's the, that, that's part of the mental health piece of it is understanding, you know, who you are without that identity of, you know, I'm this profession, I'm a doctor, I'm a this, I'm a that, like who you are at your core as a person. And so I, I like that that was something that they uh, stressed. Well, I don't know if they stressed it. Did they stress that, or was that just something that happened with you? No, it was a uh, it was 
there, there was a guy who was like over the entire academy when I went to the academy, and I'm sure he probably taught that to every class. And he, he said it quite often. There are two things that he said was that, you know, know who you are. And another saying there, remember, he says, hey, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And even if it's not okay, it's okay. Yeah. You know, so you're going to have to be uncomfortable sometimes. And, I, and those are two things or three things that really kind of settled within me you know, that I got from them more so than the penal code training, you know, the vehicle code training, the force training, you know, um, some of those things that say, hey, kind of in your core, you have to believe in these things and, yeah. and, and, and build your, your, your style, technique, character around them or something, you know. Yeah. I feel like you well, got a little bit of social worker in you. Yeah. I, I probably do because you know it's funny on a lot of my peers will say uh oh here comes Eric he's going to talk to him for about 30 minutes you know I love um, it yeah you know, I, I go to a lot it. of calls and I, I probably spend a little bit more time than most people would at a particular call if I had the time yeah. you know talking awesome. well I love it because that's I mean at the core it's about building relationships right we as human beings, I think, you know, we're learning that in this pandemic is that that lack of ability to build relationship in person is, is integral in, in creating connection. And so, you know, kind of what I hear you saying is that I want to build connection with the, the person I'm training, with the community I'm serving, like humanity, you said it, humanity, you said it before, humanity, compassion. And um, those are values, obviously, you had coming into it. And you, no, you nurture I, those I, values, it seems like. I did. Right? Yeah. And, I, and I'll say this for, for law enforcement out there. We work nights. We work weekends. We work holidays. And the people that I worked with early in my career and that trained me. And so this is not my, I can't even take credit for this. But they said, if you're working on Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, and there's nobody in your community that invites you over to say, come and eat with us. We know you're working. You're not doing something right. So if you're not getting out and talking to people, watering their lawn, mm -hmm. if you're not stopping and talking to people just to talk to them, not because you have some kind of job, Linda. if you're not pulling up next to somebody washing their car and saying, hey, that's a nice car. You know, if you're not developing relationships, what you just said, Tori, if, if you're working on Easter Sunday and nobody in your community that you're policing has said, Hey, if you're working tomorrow, come by. Or if you're working on Easter mm -hmm. or on Thanksgiving, I, I'm telling you, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think in the first five or six years that I worked in Compton, you know, there were guys that when you were working a holiday, I, hey, I'm riding with Gary today. I know he's got about four or five places we're going to stop and eat, you know? And so when you're riding with them, but then you're meeting people. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? You're meeting them and you're getting, you know, you wanted to ride with certain people so you know you're going to eat good because you right. know he's built a great reputation. You know, maybe he grew up in the community, went to school in the community, knows people in the community, mm -hmm. you know, but those relationships don't have to be damaged just because you put the uniform on. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. They're going to treat you right. Mm -hmm. Right. And it all comes down to safety, you know, it, that, because that's what the human connection is about. If I, if I feel safe with you, then I'm going to be more responsive to when you, you know, have to approach me about something or if the, you're investigating something, because I'm going to trust that, you know, that I can talk with you and speak with you. So, 
Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate it. Well, we took up most of your night, Eric. I know. Well, you know, um, I still got time. No, I'm just <laughs> what? Well, you know, we I can do articles tomorrow, the next day. We'll put you on the schedule. They could use it. They you know, I, I, I told Sylvia, you're going to have to break this law enforcement thing and this racial thing up into components because you'll never get it all in one night. You know, you, you really won't. There's so much. There's we scratched so much the surface. We scratched we the did. surface. I mean, yeah. really, look, I feel like we did because it's like this is this is dialogue that is constructive around it. And as much as sometimes I get a little cynical, I'm like, fuck it, blow it all up. You know, <laughs> I, I know that, you know, how do we get a you know if i can not to do the rodney king thing, but how do we get along how do we learn compassion for one another you know there's there's that there's that piece of me that it's like it's through this it's through dialogue it's through connection and um mm-hmm. i mean i'm i'm thankful that you came on well yeah you. i appreciate for it sure. um oh go, go ahead. ahead eric no you go ahead sorry uh, no you go ahead oh it's sir. like You're- what are we at? oregonians at a stop sign <laughs> You know, I, I was just going to say that, you know, if, if I could ask anything of people that are listening, you know, I would ask that you do not want to be placed in any category with any negative connotation to it. You want to be judged as an individual. I would say do the same thing with anybody else in the world. And that includes a police officer. I get it. And me and some of my partners talk all the time. And one of the questions that was asked in a group thread not too long ago from one of my from one of my peers, they said, hey, did we do this to ourselves? Hmm. And the answer is absolutely. Hmm. We have done it to ourselves. But we've had a lot of help from the media. Hmm. You know, we've had a lot of help from proponents, people that are just against government or law enforcement. But I I go back to this. If we were doing everything the way we were supposed to be doing, could people really come and fault us for doing it? Hmm. You know, um, you know, it's. Yes, you will always have. You will always have somebody complaining about something. You you will. You're absolutely right. But I I think that, you know. But will the general would. The majority of people come and say, you know, would you have your bandwagon jumpers? Right. You know, and and I just want to say, you know, and I don't know what you were going to say. I should probably wait. So we see what you were going to ask me or say. Well, I'm going to wait to see what you got to say now, Eric. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Not fair. I'm the guest. You have to go first. I don't even remember. Look, I got a 50 year old brain, so I don't remember. It's like almost Swiss cheese at times. Well, I, I don't know if I don't know if we're closing or not, but um, uh, we ain't closing unless you want to close. But we could take a break. You know, I it's up to you. How about how about we take a break? We'll come back because I want to hear your perspective on some because what we do here, what do you bring to the table is we also have articles that we bring from news feeds that we talk about. So, you know, what do you mind staying on and then giving us your opinion on those articles? No. Awesome. All right. Well, then we're going to take a little break and yeah. Okay. Daisy, Daisy, what's your safe word? What's your safe word, Daisy? Daisy.